Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, listeners. I want to thank our good friends at Slipped Disc for their enthusiastic support of Speaking Soundly. Be sure to check out slipdisc.com for the latest inside information on classical music now. Oh, and while you're here, could you do me a favor? If you like this show, follow it. It's pretty simple, really, and it's free. Just click the follow button on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. And if you already follow the show, click the share podcast button and send Speaking Soundly to your friends and relatives that also like listening to candid and inspiring conversations with some of the best musicians on the planet. All right. So thanks again for the continued support. We really appreciate it. Featured on Forbes' list of 30 most influential Asians under 30, international violin virtuoso Ray Chen is redefining what it means to be a classical musician in the 21st century. Ray's passion and motivating force behind his musicianship is his connection to the audience. When I think about new audiences, I think about what their expectations might be. What are their needs? Why are they here? As soon as you stop thinking about why the people are in the concert hall, that's entitlement. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. I'm very excited to talk to you because you are such a unique presence in the classical music world. You continue to champion the standard works of the violin repertoire at the highest level while racking up millions of views through your YouTube videos and your online presence. How do you maintain this balance of quality versus accessibility? Well, thank you, David. That's very kind of you. And um, for me, it's, um, it's about the reason, the why. And then the how you do it is also important in order to, as you said, not dilute the quality of of the work um but uh, for me the why of why i'm a musician is is the people right mm -hmm. a lot of artists i think their why might be the music 
But for me, or at least equally, if not more important, is the impact that the music makes. And so that becomes very important. And then in terms of the why behind all the social media, why it, it actually started with music education. I found myself in the middle between graduating from Curtis Institute of Music, from conservatory to winning these competitions and then being out there. I was in this like weird in-between zone, finding myself doing a lot of outreach where I would go and visit students and talk to them about music and perform a little bit, demonstrate a bit, and just share with them what it means to be a traveling musician, a, a professional violinist. And, and realizing that, wow, like I'm only a few years older than these kids. And they actually see me as someone who's like, cool, which led to the how. How can I reach more people? How can I basically scale this feeling where I get to be the inspiring person to a group of people, especially to the next generation? And so that turned into social media. So do you connect in the same way when you perform versus through your online videos in terms of communicating with people and affecting people? Well, my measure of success as a human being is how much positive impact I can make to the world, to people, you know, especially if there's a, a message behind it. And I, I do try to, I always try to make sure that there is at least one or two messages within a particular medium, however you deliver it. And, and so being a musician starts with, what are you trying to say in the music to a group of people who are listening? How it's being delivered is through the instrument and through, you know, all the hours of practice. But then I found that over the years, when you've met a lot of people, you start to get the hang of like the, the social languages. And, and just like when you've read a lot of different types of Bach compositions by Mozart, you, you start to understand the language of the composer. And, and, and this is the same language, it's the language of communication. And what was the learning curve with that? I mean, we're going to get into your learning curve on the violin, but just in terms of being able to communicate with large groups of people? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question because I used to be, as a kid, somebody who was very, very bad at communication. Like, for example, we'd be at a restaurant and I would be mumbling what I wanted to the waiter. And then my mom would usually be like, like, speak up, sound clearer, you know, like just say it clearer. But it was so difficult for me at the time. Over the years, that definitely improved, like anything, with practice. Through a conscious effort, dedicated practice, with a clear goal, and also some motivation. Those are the ingredients towards accomplishing anything in, in life in general. So yeah, communication definitely got better, especially as I just practiced it. <laughs> you know, it's years. funny that you, you mentioned that you were at one point a timid kid because to make these videos engaging, they have to be succinct, they have to be on target, or else they just kind of fall flat. Does the ability to communicate in a short, succinct way translate into a Mendelssohn or Beethoven violin concerto, which is easily over 25, 30 minutes? Yeah, I think so. You still got to practice. One's a sprint, one's a marathon, right? Um, but mm -hmm. then hopefully at the end of the day, if you're, if you're total work is a 30-minute concerto, then yeah, you apply that. When I'm putting together a recital program, which is usually about 75, 80, 90 minutes of music, including the encores, I'm thinking about the whole thing from beginning to the last encore. And I'm thinking about the audience, where did they come from? All walks of life, right? They're finally in 
the concert hall, what's the first note? What's the first impression that I want to give them? What are their expectations? What are their needs? And what are their pain points? Are they stressed? Probably, right? Why are they here? And so understanding that goes beyond, I'm here to play my music and you should be here. Because the, as soon as you stop thinking about why it is that you're there on stage and why the people are in the concert hall, I think that's entitlement. That's, a, mm. that's being unaware. And that's, that's okay. There's a term for that. We call it old school, especially in something that's traditional. But I think more and more as the audience has become more aware, as we become more aware, we're realizing, man, this is not actually okay. We need to be better. And that's, I think, an interesting thing that is starting to happen. That's the messaging. That's the communication. Hmm. And do you see this happening throughout classical music venues as you tour? I mean, you tour the world. Yeah, I do. I feel like everyone's trying. There was a time not so long ago when the thought of even being on social media was met with sort of like a, there's, there's no need for us to do that. Nowadays, everyone, you know, is on social media. It's, it's, a, it's a given. I think LA Phil is one of those institutions that always looks beyond what, what could they do? And they give, they give crazy young artists a chance to present their ideas and, and sometimes they even go along with it. For example, I presented once this absolute crazy idea that was like, hey, we should do this kind of like a competition, but not quite, where I play one side of the Bach double concerto for two violins and then leave the other one blank. And then we should like let everybody who wants to enter, but, but amateurs only and students, not professionals enter so they could play along with me and the LA Phil. And we'll, we'll, we'll call it Play With Ray because it sounds nice. It's a catchy name. And then on top of that, let's incentivize them by saying that we're going to choose three people who are going to be flown over to LA. And then remember that LA Phil Hollywood Bowl concert that we're doing? Why don't we have them play with me right there in that concert? And then, you know, do master classes and engage with them for the entire, you know, duration of stay. Let's, let's do that. And you know what they said? They were like, that sounds like a, a great idea. Let's do it. And I was like, I don't know how we're going to do it. <laughs> and then they said, don't worry, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out together. And tell um, me how that worked out. Oh, like it was great. I think we had over 800 applicants from over 130 countries. The youngest was six years old and the oldest was 70, 70 something years old. And... They were from all walks of life. And, you know, that's been done before, like sing along with a celebrity in the non-classical forming arts. But this was uh, an opportunity to engage with the community, a global community. And, and then you know, who did you end up with? So we had three, they were all students, actually. And they all got to play at the bowl concert. It was, it was pretty amazing. That's huge. It was, it was an incredible experience for all of us, I have to say. It was like myself included. I was running around in that sort of producer slash showrunner um, and, and also a uh, musician role, right? I think that's, that's also a, a thing that I've come to realize. It's part of communication. The most important part is being able to become aware of the different hats that you need to wear. Most of us as musicians, we, we spend most of our lives wearing one hat, maybe two, if you count the family hat and then the work hat as a musician hat, that's it. But then beyond that, when you're trying out different projects, exploring different opportunities, you need to wear different hats. And that's also been a, a big 
discovery for me in recent times, especially because, you know, now I've been moving into the tech CEO role. That has been a very humbling and uh, eye-opening experience as well. What are the biggest misconceptions that you aim to unveil when talking to new audiences about classical music? So when I think about new audiences, I think about what their expectations might be. What are they expecting when they hear classical music as just, just a word? Well, as an industry, we're seen as kind of like, we're, we're passionate for sure. No one's ever doubting the amount of passion. That seems to be the primary messaging though that most musicians enjoy putting out there is that we're so passionate, but people already get that. That's been done, been done to death, you know? It's time to, to focus on other things. All right, so we're passionate, but awkward. We're unable to communicate beyond the music itself. And from the view that I see from the audience, right? Like, I'm sure there must be jokes going on backstage, but I'm not a part of that. As a newcomer, I might have learned an instrument, but I'm not one of you and I never will be. So that's the expectations of a newcomer to classical music. And when do you address it? That's, that's the power of social media nowadays, right? You don't have to address all of those things on stage. In fact, it's already difficult enough to just address one thing, which is whether or not you're playing the music to the, to the best of your abilities to tell what needs to be told, musically speaking. There's not much room for it, really, anything else. So, you know, through social media, you get to do that and, you know, prep people. You get to prolong that whole experience of we've got something exciting coming up. And there's all these things you can learn about in the meantime. You get to be a part of this now. Here's what's going on backstage. And now you get to, for a brief moment, understand. And through that understanding, understand the music as well. It all, it all, it all sort of intertwines. What does it feel like to be playing in a concert hall when everybody's glued to everything that you're playing? Are you enjoying the music? Are you executing? Are you thinking about what people are thinking about you? Where is your head during those moments? So there was a time when I cared about too many things, especially the wrong things. In that situation, I'd be caring about who's in the audience or now that the whole orchestra is listening to me, what do they think? And what will I think later if, insert hypothetical situation where I end up messing up, you know, and the horrible things that could go wrong? Why burden yourself with such thoughts? We are our own greatest enemy. Don't pedal and break at the same time. There's so much wasted energy, which you could be using to actually do something great. And... When I made that realization, I was like, wow, I, I need to start working on it. You know, you have to be opening yourself up. And so sometimes it takes someone else. Maybe sometimes it takes a professional and being okay with that. So this is work away from the violin. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at, at, at a certain point, you know how to play the instrument, like technically. Now it's time to work on yourself, the musician side of you, the human being, which affects where the musician lives inside of you. How could you not work on that? Most people stop there as soon as they graduate. And I think that's why there are many unhappy musicians, because when we're not creating, we're unhappy. So when you're playing, you're partaking in the consumption of the music as you're creating it at the same time. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the whole the whole point, right? You got to inspire yourself, and then you you take that inspiration and you cycle it again through, so that you create even higher forms of inspiration for yourself. That's the greatest thing about artistry. The whole point of what we all practice for, so that we don't have to think about the technical issues, so we can get into this flow state. You touch on this in a fantastic video that you put out in 2020 called What Would I Tell My Past Self? And in that, you are being really honest with the trials and tribulations of performance and growing that you went through. And many people would want to keep that to themselves, yet you put it out there for everyone to see. Was that a difficult process? Yes and no. It's always difficult to come face to face with any friction or obstacle within yourself. The self-admittance part is one layer of difficulty, and then to share is another layer. I see a pattern where when I share, I grow. When I share on stage, when I share music, when I ask questions out loud, I put myself in the shoes of other people looking at myself. It's now third person mode, right? I've broken beyond my own thoughts in my head and the echo chambers that may exist. That's the real value of performance. You provide value for others, but you also provide value for yourself. In theater, or at least where I work at the opera, you can update a piece of theater. You could set a Mozart opera in the 1980s, but music doesn't change. Do you strive to make music that isn't contemporary, socially relevant, and how do you imbue it with a freshness that is new? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think it goes beyond just the costumes, right? There is an intention behind why it's set during a specific time period that's juxtaposed against the words, the, the actions, the music itself. And that juxtaposition creates a dialogue, which makes it fresh, it makes it new. We're seeing that a lot in TV shows nowadays, right? Anything that's had a long legacy where the character is supposed to be the same, but then it's different. Even like James Bond, he's quite chauvinist, right? How would his character react in a modern day world? And so for me, playing um, Beethoven, the music stays the same. However, the reaction towards the emotion changes the way I phrase, for example, versus the way people phrased back in the 1940s or 50s. There was like this sort of steely stoic way of playing where you can't show your emotions. They were mostly male soloists and they would all just be like, I'm strong and virtuosic in my own right. Thank you very much. And now it's like showing vulnerability in playing. Having like a soft part that draws people in is something that's relatively new when you think about it. So music should and will always change depending on society. And that's the wonderful, wonderful thing. You were born in Taiwan, raised in Australia, moved to Philadelphia at 15 to attend Curtis. I'm sending my youngest daughter off to college in about a month in the same state that I live. And everybody's so emotional, like she's going so far away. She's going like two hours away. So... Uh, <laughs> How did you and your family manage these moves, uh, especially you at a particularly early age? Yeah, it was, it was pretty stressful. Um, I mean, I was born in Taiwan. My parents and I moved to Australia, to Brisbane. Um, as a first-gen immigrant, you just encounter more friction. You're used to it. It creates what 
we call grit in a person. You're used to obstacles happening, you're used to friction, and you just push through or you solve it somehow. You solve the problem. It, it hardens you too. And uh, too much hardening can be bad. It can send you off the rails and you become an angry person. However, just the right amount becomes ambition. Ambition can become success. Success can translate into many things. So I think that um, for me, that was, that was the case right at the beginning. That grit was developed. I mean, other kids, when they're 10 years old, don't have to read and translate the letters. And later on became emails that, that my parents would write to make sure that there weren't any grammar issues. Oh, and wow. it's really quite common when you're from an immigrant family. It's, it's super common, in fact. Um, but that's the other side, right? That's the other side that most, um, most people who aren't immigrants don't see. But, um, and that, that's just a small thing. I mean, I know other kids who actually had to, you know, help out that their parents' restaurant or, you know, wash the dishes, like mm -hmm. clean up stuff. Like that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty normal as well. So I did stuff like that. And, and it teaches you to become independent. And when you travel for lessons, for me, that meant like actually flying down from Brisbane to Sydney, like every other week to take lessons. And then eventually, you know, doing At that what on age my own. was that? I was 13. 13 yeah. or 14 years old, you know, taking a plane and then going down, sometimes staying a night, you know, taking the train when I got there to, to my teacher's house, you know, waiting because you need buffer time, like waiting at the local library, taking, getting some lunch, you know, playing it for the lesson and then coming back. Yeah, it was a So you're a talking process. about getting on a plane and managing all of this by yourself. Do you consider this prodigious aspect of your upbringing? Not, not for a second, not for a second, David. I always felt like I was, I was needing to catch up. And that started with actually the, the approach to music that I had because I was always just playing for fun. Sure, I had talent and I've been told many times that I had talent and I believed that myself. Um, but prodigy usually implies that uh, not only is this a young person who has talent, but that they are already accomplishing great things in, in the form of a professional career. Uh, I did not have that. So, um, and, and, you know, even auditioning at Curtis, uh, yes, super prestigious school. I had to audition twice. I didn't get in the first time. So I flew all the way from Australia with my mom to audition when I was 14. Didn't get in, did the same thing again the following year. Um, but you know, that was, uh, that was part of the immense support that my parents gave me in order for me to achieve my dream. And you were undeterred. Yeah, I mean, I was determined, probably from all that grit. <laughs> Your stats are pretty staggering. You're a Taiwanese-Australian living in Philly, playing on a $10 million Stradivarius from 1735 that was once owned by a famous Hungarian violinist, went through many incredible violinists throughout the world before it became yours. Do you feel connected to all these different facets that make up your artistic life? Because it's pretty amazing. I, I think I, I, I see those things as arms and legs things, you know, uh, David, it's not the heart. It's not, it's not, it doesn't get to, for me, at least the, the why. Sure, it helps you along the way, but most people focus too much on the, the, the stats instead of like on what it is that produces these finished products. And so what does it matter what instrument 
this person's playing on, you know, oh, you're a Steinway or you're playing on a Yamaha, right? Like even the awards, if you win a competition. What you have. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and those are important. But why are they important? Because of the encouragement and the belief that at this time in your life, everybody believed in you. And then you go and do something with that, right? Do what you will. That's, that's the most important part. Like this violin has been bestowed upon you because you are worthy. It is Thor's hammer to you. Now, what are you going to do with it, right? That's what the, the protagonist always does. Otherwise, Thor would have just finished when he got the hammer. You know, the story begins when Thor gets the hammer. The story begins when James Bond becomes 007. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly. 